This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. Thanks a lot for doing this. Obviously, we've we've grown to become really good friends uh, in the city of Chicago. Uh, and I, for those listening, Ash Agarwal is the CEO, board member of a startup called Symbiotic Wear. Um, the, I would say, funny kind of small world twist of it is this startup is based in Sun- Sudbury, Ontario. So that's kind of the Canadian uh, connection. Uh, and we're going to talk more about Symbiotic, but for now, just wanted to introduce uh, Ash very briefly and uh, you know, very excited to have you on the podcast. Likewise, George. Thank you. It's awesome. So we were talking a little bit. I mean, I guess I always like to start with you know someone's journey right before we get to kind of the business. And, and we have a lot to discuss from fundraising to managing a startup to you know, going through the ups and downs. But for those who might not be aware, you know, you got your master's degree from Stanford. When was it for you, like when was it apparent that, you know, you wanted to really go into the startup world, specifically leading the charge for a startup that, you know, is still kind of in its emerging stage or or, or phase of of life? I think the idea of um, going into innovation space, tech space or entrepreneurship, it was all a blur at that time when this idea came. I honestly did not know what I wanted, but... I definitely hated the status quo uh, where I was. Mm. So at that time, I was a sales manager used to sell big, heavy machines. And I was involved in one of the projects that was implementing IoT sensors on a machine that can tell the operators if the machine is going to fail. And that project really picked my interest in terms of if this small sensor can do such great things, what is it that we can do with that information? Can we go even further? What is happening in the field of you know, machine learning and AI? And can we apply that to natural resource industry, which is definitely underserved? And that, that thought did not leave me for several years. I kept working on it, thinking about it. And I realized that until I am in a right place, which you can call a crucible or an incubator, Mm-hmm. My my idea is I will not be able to have enough leverage. So I will just stay a tiny particle thinking big, but if I'm not able to convert my thoughts into action, and and I won't be able to make any potential positive impact. Right. So for that reason, I, I decided to pursue my master's at uh, Stanford Business School. The first thing I did after I enrolled into the class was I started my company. And the start of uh, two friends uh, from the same class, we started that and we start, we, we, were, we got lucky that we got two customers, one in Canada and one in US, those who were kind enough to give us that data to play with. And we were able to give them some output of that startup. Th- that's where I really found kind of, I, I cannot call it, call it my purpose, but at least a journey that I thoroughly enjoy. And when I was writing the essay for, for you know, the business school, and Stanford's essay is, is interesting. They, they ask you, it's a very innocent question. They ask you, what matters to you the most and why? Hmm. Is and it you're like supposed a to... philosophical question for, for life? Like, could it be a personal answer or is it a professional? I've seen successful essays. Hmm. Uh, someone t- talking about, I like tomatoes. Tomatoes matter to me because oh. he, he was he was a chef. Interesting. So it doesn't matter 
uh, what matters to you, philosophy or material does not matter. But how can you be so passionate about something that you can tell this matters to me? And that question, I took two months to write the answer of this question. Every day, every night I used to introspect, think about, and I had a whiteboard in my bedroom where I just, every morning I used to write down some ideas. And there were so many stupid ideas, stupid things that I wrote on that board. One day I I really came up with this, that, you know what? Making a positive impact around me matters to me. And I'm really passionate about making an impact on this industry I'm working in. This industry is so, is so deserving of right technology, but at the same time, it is so underserved. Very old-fashioned industry, the technology has, hasn't even touched it. Now, we have Teslas running on the streets with so much technology that is not even needed today. There's no, no problem. People are not going to bump into other cars if Tesla autopilot or collision avoidance system is not active, right? Mm-hmm. The novel cars are still running. But if you think about underground mining, there are ac- accidents happening because there is no way an operator can see around the corner in the dark. So there is so much disparity of technology in the outer world and in the resource industry. So those things really bothered me. And that's why I, that's what I, I started to fix one piece at a time. So after my startup, I, I joined Uptake, who wanted to, they wanted to start their mining business, mining vertical. And I thought that's a perfect opportunity for me to, to do things at scale. A 3% company can only do so much. But if there is an existing infrastructure, a platform that can teach you how to do things at scale, at the same time can enable you to make impact 15 times more than what you would have done otherwise individually, um, I thought that's that's definitely an asymmetric risk I should take. Mm. And then I did um, serve the mining industry at Uptake before I joined uh, Symbioticware as their CEO. That's very interesting for one. And I think the reason, I mean, thank you for explaining that, especially with Stanford, like writing your thesis, what you care most about. I feel like, especially with the startup world, to your point, like your opener was all about how do you take an idea, execute it, create an impact, right? What I like about what you were saying is it takes a lot of introspection to actually figure out what kind of impact you can make from a startup lens, especially tapping into an industry like mining. From the onset, if you told me that, I'm like, what impact would you be creating? You know, and sometimes you have to foster these stories that really create meaning in your life, if you know what I'm saying, because everything could be bland on paper, but you can also dig very, very, uh, at a much deeper lens, I would say, to create that meaning, which I guess for you provides more fulfillment, right? Than than just saying, you know what, we're trying to tap into the mining sector and trying to help machinery uh, or optimize efficiency for machinery. I mean, that's very bland. But tapping into kind of the deeper side and figuring out fulfillment, I think for you was a very crucial first step, right? It is very crucial first step, George. Uh, The journey um, on entrepreneurship is so rough. It is so bumpy. There, There are more bad days than good days. And there are so much uncertainty. And there is so much self doubt. There is so much insecurity. And as we grow old in life and as we get more responsibilities, 
our kids start growing older the appetite to risk start going down right right then 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 i'm looking for my daughter's college fee i'm looking for where she would go to her school and all that in all these situations on this lonely lonely journey the only thing that can hold your hand is that higher purpose is that greater goal that is beyond like exactly what you just said is so spot on that it is beyond increasing efficiency of machines it is beyond doing something that does not exist it is solving something that nobody has solved and that that's something i'm in in that in that stage of my life george where i'm starting to question how many years are left uh, in my life and when i am dying am i going to leave something which is worth talking about mm-hmm. i'm already thinking about my legacy um what it, what will that be uh, right. will i end up a mediocre person or will i just leave something that other people can can utilize and can get benefit from yeah the the, the legacy part is an important one right and obviously you're you're still a young soul so but but it's it's still i feel like a good reflective question to have um and a hard one right like as an entrepreneur you're always mixed with we'll get to the fundraising part but there's the business side then there's like the the moral uplifting side to your point that kind of gets you through those really rough days um because you're going to have more rough days than probably the the the, the good side and what Reid Hoffman calls kind of the valley of the shadow especially early days right um it's really difficult to go through that i wanted to ask you uh, sticking to this theme for a second what was the preface i don't know if i got that from you in terms of like why why mining like was it a personal uh scenario that you went through or a pain point that you heard or studied about why that industry specifically i was doing my undergrad and i was in my third year of study when there were a ton of companies coming for campus placement okay and there were so many different companies like defense sector manufacturing automobile manufacturing mm-hmm. and the only company that that i found really interesting was a mining company so this was the this is the story of an entrepreneur they are, they are the they were the scrap dealers and from a scrap dealer they started acquiring mining assets and they acquired some some government owned uh, mining companies and that was when they came to my school for campus placement that was their first class that they would hire as a private company and i thought that this is this is awesome this is an opportunity where i'll get to make some impact i'll i'll get to do something because these entrepreneurs these people they are scrappy they're literally scrappy people they they find value in scrap and they they value everything really well i would like to work with these people so i really did not care honestly george i did not know enough about mining to make that decision i was probably 20s early in my early 20s um all i cared about i found these people interesting <laughs> i i would love to work with them and when i went there i worked there for 7 years where i was responsible for plant operation i was responsible for commissioning of new plants and it was super fun uh part of my life it was a dna that i'll always carry in my life i used to work 18 hours a day 
because I had so much fun. I, I enjoyed every single moment. And that's where I realized that, oh my goodness, this industry is so much in need of innovation. Someone should think about this, that this industry consumes so much electricity, so much energy in reducing the size of the rock from one meter to 63 microns. And it has been happening for hundreds of years. No innovation. People have only built bigger machines. That's the definition of innovation for manufacturers. So if you see the graph of the machine size, maybe it's a haul truck for Caterpillar. Maybe it's a, it's a grinding machine for any other vendor. The size has gone up, enabling people to process more material. Yeah. But not necessarily but more efficiently, right? Not necessarily more efficient. And even for the... If you don't mind me asking, I'm curious. It is just that so much inertia, so much inertia is there. Industry is used to buying something that they have always seen before. Now we are talking about some innovative thinking about robotic mining, nano mining, is why do you need to excavate one meter of waste only to find few ounces of gold? And then you'll have to reduce the whole size of one meter down to a few microns, and then you apply energy again. So now there is a precision mining concept that you mine only where the gold is, the gold is. and leave everything there. So th those things are now being talked about. So there is hope. But despite that, there is a lot of, lot of play for innovation to take place, for innovation to make things better. And that's where I, I really got my my interest that I understand this industry. I, I know this, I, I, I need to serve this industry as much as I can. Well, kudos to you. I mean, again, it's not like, I feel like mining doesn't jump out to everyone really quickly, right? Unless you're a geologist or that's kind of the subsector that you wanted to focus on early, uh, traditionally, but for you, like you saw the innovation way in advance and you decided to go into the corporate side first, get as much experience as you can, see it from a different side and then figure out really from a practical perspective, like where that innovation can sit. So what do you do after that? You spend seven years, you know, seeing it from, from a kind of a first glance. What was it apparent to you that, ah, oh, okay, I figured out the exact pain point and, and here are my next steps. Can you repeat that question again? I lost you for a second. So curious, like, you know, you spent, let's call it seven, eight years, right? More so on the corporate side. When, and you, you mentioned like when you were there, it was, it was great experience. You know, you ran plant operations. You did all these different roles. When was it apparent for you, if it was during that time, the real pain point you wanted to, to tackle, maybe from a startup perspective? Yeah. I would not say that, that it was a startup perspective back then. Okay. But I understood the pain when I was responsible for 150 machines. Uh, in my area, there were pumps and there were flotation cells and everything. And all of them had bearings. And those bearings used to fail all the time. Machines goes down and the plant stops and there is a production loss and then everything is um, is broken. So what I used to do, the first thing in the morning I used to do was I used to hug the machines and listen to that bearing sound. When the shaft is rotating, bearing is making a sound. And I used to do that every day, like an unbreakable ritual. And I trained my ear 
to to understand if there is anything off in that sound i was able to predict how many days this machine is going to last before it breaks down and then i match that prediction make a table match that prediction with when is the next time we are stopping the plant to do the maintenance that that sounds really manual oh my god i, I guess it, it was horrible uh, i you, you would not want to be close to to me because i was soaked in that <laughs> material all the time but that was and i said this is not this is not happening I was I can't keep doing this. Yeah, like what's every day someone is hugging the machines and and figuring it out. This is insane. You multiply that by the number of operations that you have in the world, you can't do that. That was the first instance when I realized that there has to be something. This has to be solved. I did not know how. I was still operating like uh, in a in a tiny shell. i had no idea what is happening outside what is the innovation and after serving that company for 6 7 years i thought maybe i have done enough i am where i was i do not have answers to to my questions to my problems i'm still doing the same thing incrementally better incrementally better has never never satisfied it actually it, it frustrates me so i decided to join the manufacturer of those machines in in order to understand what is the thought process in design is there anything that they have access to because i'm the user of the machine i don't have access to the design part of it i don't know those ideas that those people have mm-hmm. so i joined the seller the the company that manufactured those machines, the machines to sell. to understand okay, can we do something and that's where i got engaged with the that project is to install those iot sensors iot devices that can monitor those sound of bearing or that can count the the rotations of the machine and can predict can alert you if something is off so th- that was very incremental understanding from in my brain that something can be done there is something that you know can be applied and then i started thinking why don't we do this at a data level not a sensor level what else can we do and that was a genesis of i now i can call it a journey for those listening i know we said iot and you know it's more of a misnomer in the industry but can you explain and i think for most people they understand software or you know saas as software as a service but in terms of internet of things from from your vantage point can you describe what iot actually is specific let's say to your industry and how it actually has helped IoT is a misnomer you're spot on there the internet of things the the naming came in for a very different perspective the idea behind this name was very different from what it is today exactly uh the idea was what if the devices were connected right what if we could read those devices without being present physically with them now the diff- the idea is totally different the the idea is how do i replicate human interaction with physical space mm. so human interaction is and i'm still staying within the industrial world machines right. and everything so human interaction is an experienced 
person who has spent 20, 30 years in a, in a plant setting, machinery setting, they know when something does not make sense. Something looks different, something sounds different, or something feels different. There, is, there are vibrations, there are some other noises that are not common. That, that we call tribal knowledge. How do you take that tribal knowledge, standardize it, and don't just stay at that knowledge level. You go to the intelligence level. So there is one thing is capturing that input that a human would and replicate that knowledge. The second level is how do I borrow human's intelligence and provide that to anybody? Right. That, that's, the, that's the goal of IoT today. Internet of Things is now evolving into a thinking machine, a thinking sensor. So what we are working today at Symbioticware, our IoT device that we have been selling for 13 years now, we are writing algorithms on the device itself. So the device doesn't have to tell someone else, like the cloud software or something, hey, I've got this knowledge. Now it's your job to apply intelligence on it and give insight to the user. The intelligence is applied right here on the device level. So wow. while the device is listening, noticing things, it can also interpret things. And when it, when it interprets, it can apply logics. It can apply intelligence to it and provide that finished outcome to the users of those devices. So the IoT, I don't know how do you condense into a very, you know, a glamorous term like IoT, but in, in my opinion, it is intelligence of things. It's not Internet of Things. Right. That's actually a much better definition, especially with your ex example. And it fits really well with the way you were describing it. It is basically like you going from hugging the machine so that you can listen to the beat of the, you know, of the parts and figuring out where the, the gaps are to where you are today with Symbioticware. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the opportunity space is, is enormous, George. When I think about um, the sustainability part of it, mining has been a champion for sustainability for decades. So much so that now we have a sustainability index, just like we have Dow Jones index. Right. There is a Dow Jones sustainability index. And they, they rank the companies on their investment and their focus on sustainability. But it's really, so far, it's been more talk, less action. Now it's, it's time for action. The industry, the resource industry where we operate, mining, forestry, agriculture, construction, there are seven to eight million machines in these industries. And these machines produce five billion tons of carbon dioxide every single year. Is that in Canada or in like in globally? Europe? Globally, wow. Five billion tons. George, the European Union's total greenhouse gas output is 10 something, 11 per year. And this is just one resource industry. So when we have the electric car conversation or battery conversation, we cannot build a battery without copper, Correct. lithium, nickel molybdenum and electric car has as much as 
four or five times copper as compared to the normal gas car. Right. All these minerals are supposed to be mined somewhere. And they are carried on these mobile machines that I'm talking about. How do you balance the equation? If you convert a gas-operated vehicle to an electric vehicle and say, I've done my bit in terms of saving the environment. That's really interesting. Yeah, there is an there is a variable missing in that equation. The equation is not balanced. Isn't that hilarious? Though I feel like when most people buy Teslas, right, they they almost feel like their entire livelihood is more green, right? Like I have a I have a physical passport in society that says, "Look, I'm I'm trying to be more, you know, more uh, I guess responsible, socially responsible from a climate perspective." Yet when you peel back the onion, to your point, you know, if you kind of reverse ba- reverse engineer it backwards. How, well, okay, well, how did the car got put together, especially from a battery uh, side, which is like the livelihood of this car? Literally, the entire base of the car is this one battery. Um, and where did this battery come from? From which minerals? From which mining site? From which tractors? And, and how, how much sort of waste did they create in the climate? Exactly. And then one thing that is, I won't say lost to people, but it's something that gets unnoticed, is that that battery needs to be replaced every five years. Hmm. It's not like I made one-time investment and I bought a battery, whatever impact has happened has happened. I have to do that every five years. Right. There's maintenance on the gas, of course. So, and I'm I'm not saying, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying Tesla is bad. I'm not saying people who want to do something good socially are, are, are not thinking it straight. They're thinking it straight. But there has to be someone who is working on that missing variable in this equation. Correct. Like I think the intention is right. The intention is there. And the finished product is trying to go that direction. But the problem is, to your point, like you're almost at the at the at the at the starting point of this entire process that trickles down to the consumer level. You know. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's something that we are trying to do at Symbotic Bear. Exactly. We, we, we are there where we are supposed to be, actually. Yeah. The, the problem with the industry, George, is why this problem has been existing for decades. It's not that people don't know about it. If I, I can give you that, that the mining companies or any other company, they don't really care too much about the greenhouse gas emissions until you tax them for that. Nobody cares about this pollution from a mine operating in a jungle. But they do care about the fuel consumption. They do spend, spend millions of gallons every year of fuel. That's a cost. So there, there is some thing going on for decades that is not solved yet. And when we think, think deeply about it, why it has not been solved if it was, it was a worthy problem? And the problem was so simple. And I give you a simple example. Slack as an application, it's pretty cool. Collaboration, chatting, file sharing. But imagine if people did not have a hardware where they can download this, the application and, and operate. Slack would not exist if, if iPhone wasn't here. If we did not have phone that we can use to download and input information, Slack would not exist, despite it being a pretty cool application. And similarly, any other collaboration tool. And that's exactly the problem with the resource industry. The resource industry, these yellow machines that you see, yellow, green, 
red machines from multiple manufacturers. The problem is that there are cool applications that exist. I wrote some applications myself when I had my own startup, the AI software. And when I was at Uptake, we built some really cool algorithms that can really you know, save a lot of money, a lot of fuel, and also greenhouse gases for the customers. The challenge was that we built Slack, but my customers did not have phone. And that was a huge, huge mismatch. We go and sell, try to sell something, a, a cool software, and the customer says, dude, what are you talking about? I don't even have a hardware that I can install it. Yeah, how can we use it, right? And that's where Symbioticware comes in, in picture. We had that hardware IoT device that now we are building into an operating system a software that can not only provide users immediate feedback, like I said, on the edge processing on the compute side on a device level, but it can also allow people, the customers, to to download these cool applications from the App Store and try them. So we're trying to bridge that gap that has been existing for decades. And we found ourselves in that unique position, thanks to more than a decade experience that we have had in this space, that we are in this this position, it's our responsibility mm-hmm. to do something that we can do. And that, that's that meaningful purpose that keeps us pushing. Very interesting. I love that that analogy in terms of being kind of like the, the iOS store, right? Where people can download different apps uh, and they, they can also figure out which ones are more meaningful to their operations. Um, it, it's very interesting. And I almost felt like Tesla could go that route too. Right from an EV perspective, like I figured at one point, you know, because they they basically push new features to the car that you can upgrade, right? And I felt like that's potentially where they can go from an EV uh, perspective for electric vehicles. So it's really interesting for you to to say that. One of my questions was going to be, and I know you recently did a financing, but how has it been operating a startup like Symbioticware, you know, trying to to fundraise, even though you've been bootstrapped for quite some time. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, for a hardware slash software business, right? Because everybody talks about hardware being much more infamously uh, challenging to raise money for versus, let's say, software. Uh, Because it's more cap intensive, you know, the recurring revenue is not as apparent, let's say, as software. There are certain challenges with it. But curious, just from from your lens, how have you seen that uh, transpire? From an investor's standpoint, a company should not have three, any other three risks, mm-hmm. product risk, business model risk, and market risk. These three risks should, any of these three risks should not be there for an investable company. A- any one you're saying? Any, one, any of one of those three, right? I mean, then it's a matter of conversation. Hey, I do have a risk, but I have a mitigation strategy. Of course. Here's but if point. it's a risk that cannot be fixed, then that's a no-go. I have a huge market, but my product sucks and I can't do anything about it. <laughs> That's something you don't want to invest in. All right. So where unfortunately, we had all risks, all the three. Really? We had a product that was hardware and we used to sell it and a capital model, like a transaction. And then we were operating only in the underground mining. So from a product standpoint, we were just providing our customers data but not the value from it. So our product was very limited in value proposition. 
from a business model perspective, it was a transactional business model, just like you go apps to an Apple store and, and buy Apple Watch for 300 bucks. And then your transaction with Apple is done. If Apple has to make another 300 bucks, they will have to find another George. But unlike Apple, people don't line up outside Symbioticware to buy our hardware. So we have to find new customer to make that money. It is painful. And for, finally, we were in underground mining space, which is very small. So we had market risk and business model risk and product risk. But this was the flip side of the equation that we realized that we cannot cannot fundraise with these risks present. So mm -hmm. let's not only fix this. So I never in my life, I, I never operate from weaknesses. Always, when I look at a weakness and I see this has to be fixed, I never just go roll up my sleeves and try fixing it. Of course, that needs to be fixed. But every time you have to operate from strength. Because that's what gives you not only leverage, leverage is the wrong word here, but that gives you momentum, that gives right. you a bigger goal to achieve. Right. It gives you kind of the head start to get to that bigger goal. I get it. it yeah. So if you spend all your efforts in fixing your weaknesses, after that, you're still the same. Mm -hmm. You just repaired your car. But if you think about what can I do with this car, can I put some bigger engine and make it go faster? Or can I put some wings and make it fly? Whatever. So we started thinking from a strength perspective is although we, I need to fix all these three, but let me think about where is our place in the industry? What is it that we can do? What is it that we owe this industry? Because we have been around 13 years and we found that ultimate mission, ultimate goal for us is, you know what? We have to bridge this gap. People are looking for applications like Slack, but they don't have a phone. So our job is to provide them phone. All right, so let's write the product, business model, market to match that vision. Mm -hmm. So we started working from the high level vision and all these three risks, risks were immediately, ultimately solved because there is no other way you can do that. And that was a compelling story to, to tell anyone. Now, it's it's one thing to raise money for a startup that you conceived in, in your garage or in your parents' bedroom or in a dormitory at school. It's easy to raise money that way. Right. It's hard to raise money for a 13-year-old company that you're trying to change because it's so many things are in play. And for that, we need to to you know build credibility that what we are saying has some merit to it. What we are saying is backed by some strength. So what we did, we started our fundraising exercise or activity immediately and prepared six months. We you started building six months runway, which is crucial, by the way. I just want to like point that out. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. six months of building product. We started building product. Even when we did not have funding, we did not have any resources. Remember, we were a hardware company and we are trying to build a software now. Yeah. Whatever we had, we just put, put all, every single ounce of juice we could capture from Symbioticware and started building a product. Second, we stopped selling the earlier product and started selling this product that was not built yet. We started selling it already. 
because we know that the sales cycle in our industry is long. The only way you can work in, in, in a scrappy startup manner is sell forward. By the time you get a deal signed, you'll have a product ready. Interesting. I like that concept, sell forward. And that that's like you have to hustle while you wait. There is no such thing waiting in, yeah, in a startup world. Tell me about it, man. I, I, I believe that every day almost. Right. Yeah. So you know it as much as I do, George. But then th- this is something that helped us increase our sales pipeline by 400%. So you were explaining to me this process a little bit more deeply. I think this, this is actually critical for, for startup founders listening. So you're, as you're working on this product, you're still selling it, but you're selling it for like a foreseeable date, let's say four months from now. And you're building the pipeline, kind of like a wait list for, for an app, let's say, or, is, right? or like a mailing list in exactly. anticipation of something, correct? And it, it, it does more than that. It builds your pipeline. It, it gives you prospects that you can go out and say, hey, remember I told you about the product coming? We've launched. Yeah. Here's a product. You're still yeah. interested? It does more than that because it helps you test your hypothesis. We go out to the market with a hypothesis that this software product is going to solve something that was not solved previously. It's a hypothesis. It needs validation. It needs testing before we actually build the product. In this process of selling forward, we actually got live feedback from a customer. And we pick up the phone and say, I'm building this. Will you buy it? Will you pay at least anything more than zero to use this product? And the customer says, well, I may. looks interesting. That's a validation. And then you unpack your product more and more and see, hey, this is how we are thinking. And these are the features we are building. Would you be interested? Then you open up and you understand from that perspective, a buyer's perspective. So th- that was a validation for our product. So we did multiple things at the same time, getting a feedback for the product, building a sales pipeline, and also telling a convincing story to our pro- potential investors that this company is not the same that has been operating. This company has changed. So it was a little harder, but uh, we, we got lucky that we got investors to believe in us. And you recently closed on the financing. I believe it was a million and, and some change. Correct me if I'm wrong, the, the final the final. So we, we went out in the, to the market to, to raise two million, but we were oversubscribed by a lot. Wow. And we raised 2.8 million Canadian. Canadian, that's right. Sorry, I was trying to reflect it in the US. 2.8 million, which is no easy feat. I mean, kudos to you, man. I know, by the way, for people listening, you've only been in this role as the CEO of of symbiotic wear which has been around for much longer um for about a year right in a few I, months. september last year i joined yes so you just crossed the year which is incredible I, I had one one more question for you um aside from maybe advice and stuff but i just want to what was the first thing that you told the team at symbiotic when you first joined like how did you reconfigure morale after 12 years of doing this and you've really changed the vision obviously with the help of the team of course and I know that, you know, this is never a one-person team, but it takes leadership. And so what was the first conversation you had with the team when you took when you took over as CEO? So one thing I would, first of all, before I answer this question, George, I, I would say that I don't deserve uh, the whole kudos or congratulations. Uh, it was almost like I was icing on the cake oh, that was okay. already built. Makes it really tasty, though, man. Come on now. So, yes, the cake was already there. Right, the people were already there. So the, the, a company is nothing but people. 
And I we were we got we were so fortunate that they were strongest team that I have ever worked with. People were so passionate that they don't know how to say no to anything. Mm. No drama in the company. No nothing, no credit, nothing. You you say something and it gets done. That's so awesome. that was the, that was a very big strength. It really made my job easier mm-hmm. uh, to to get things done and also communicate a very compelling story. I've never sold anything that I did not believe myself first. Right. I've been in sales for seven years. I sold products, and I have to be convinced completely of the value of the product before I tell anyone else to buy it. And when it comes to investment fundraising. You're actually, it's, don't laugh at me, but it's essentially insider trading. Like it's in in the long run. Yeah, because you're giving, you're basically disclosing everything about the company and where you're heading to. I get it. Like, so it's it's a sales. Yeah. Yeah. So you're you're selling a company, infrastructure, vision, people, and you can't do that until you have that confidence in yourself. Of course. So that's something that Kirk, uh, the founder of the company and my partner in crime, he did a great job in creating a company, the foundation on which we are standing right now. So what you see, George, is just a a tip. The iceberg has been created for, for 12, 13 years. So to answer your question around what did I say the first time I met the team, I said, we have huge opportunity in front of us. Thank you for whatever you have done so far. And let's do even better. We had this opportunity. We had this shot that no one else in the world has. We have something that no one, nobody else has. And that's not just a privilege. It's a responsibility. What do we do with this? Mm-hmm. Let's aim for something that is higher than just earning money or making profits. Let's do something that's mean, meaningful. And I was so fortunate that a lot of our team members, they're really connected with the greenhouse gas side of things, the climate side of things, that we are building something that is going to help our planet get, become better. So that was very helpful for me. Did you find it hard for, for, for people to sort of build trust in you? You know, like when you take over something, it's been 12, it's a very unique scenario, what you've done. That's why I'm kind of prying on it. And I like I like your messaging. Like, hey, thank you for thank you for building this so far. We still have room to grow, um, you know. But we're going to do this together. You kind of like you got everyone seeing seeing the vision that you that you saw coming in, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't have taken this role to begin with. Um, but did you find it hard for people to build trust in you early on, like as a CEO? Like, how do you build that confidently? You know, trust is the ultimate currency. Right. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. There is no other thing that matters more than trust. And it's also earned, right? Like I, yeah. Right. Cause you can say all of that, but they want people are like, all right, cool. We've heard this, you know, let's see the next, how the next year is going to go. Probably. Right. Yeah. You got that, that cynicism a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. For, for sure. And you know, trust the way it works is that trust is given first and then you earn it. Like you said, Right. Like, show me. I'll open the doors and now prove to me that it's worth giving it to you. Exactly. And I was looking for those uh, pointers where I can say, thank you for giving your trust. And this is how I aim to earn it. 
And when I earn it, I'll go back and say, I told you so, I'm going to earn it, I, and I earned it. <laughs> this now is mine can, now. <laughs> this, I, and we can celebrate, right? <laughs> so that's exactly what we did. Uh, some tiny successes, some small feats, where without taking anything from the team, giving it back to them and say, we are doing great. We are, we are doing positive things. And you can't rush earning trust. You cannot rush it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a process. It's a, it, it, it's a, it goes into your body language. It goes into your attitude. And it goes finally to your character. Hmm. Yeah, very true. I like the way you said it. Like sort of give it to me and then I'll earn it. I'll come back to you and we'll, we'll celebrate together. Uh, the, the final thing I wanted to ask you is what, what advice would you give? I know you shared a little bit of it, but what advice would you give to someone starting out now? Like, let's say your former self right after uh, graduating from Sloan. In terms of advice, um, there are multiple phases of entrepreneurship. When people have an idea, at what stage are they asking the advice? It depends on what advice can be given. Um, I don't want to say something that, like, there is no silver bullet. And I say, hey, do this and you're going to be successful. Mm -hmm. I say a couple of things. One is, I've always been successful wherever I have been, and I failed miserably at others. But I found that asymmetric risks is something that people should actively pursue. And asymmetric risks, risks are where there is a risk, but the reward to risk ratio is significant. Huge upside. Right. For example, if you go to a networking dinner, there is a risk that you won't make a connection and you will end up spending some money or some time or whatever that opportunity cost. But the reward is insane amount of you can meet someone that can change your life. It's an asymmetric risk. Writing your blog, writing your book, it's an asymmetric risk. Similarly, entrepreneurship, identifying those asymmetric risks where we place bets. Identification of asymmetric risk is a skill. And having a courage to pursue it, it's another character thing, which entrepreneurs by default have. So that's not, okay. it's barely an advice. Yeah, it's a mix of, of a skill and a characteristic in that sense. And then once you have that figured out, <clears throat> figured out, then hustle while you wait. Mm. And just keep doing, keep keep pushing. And there's, there could be a million things can be said that in this journey, you will come across some highs and some lows. These are the remedies for lows. These are the things that you should do when you're high. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that if two pieces of advice I can leave is identify asymmetric risks and hustle. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. And I'll see you next time.